welcome to this week's episode of FedSpeak, Central Banking's new podcast series taking a closer look into the Federal Reserve. My name is William Towning, and throughout this series, I'll be taking you on a trip across the 12 reserve banks to discuss some of the projects or developments underway in each region. The Federal Reserve has had a truly impressive couple of months tackling the economic fallout of the coronavirus, which has sadly devastated so many lives and brought most of the advanced world to its knees. But with us today is a Fed official that has embarked on a different kind of public service, with a project designed to help fulfill the heightened need for policymakers of all sorts to access real-time data to help understand the impacts of the virus and the resulting containment efforts on the population. The need for coordination between epidemiology, economics, and health disciplines has likely never been so urgent. Abigail Wozniak is the director of the Minneapolis Fed's Opportunity and Inclusive Growth Institute, and will share with us today how she and the Institute are supporting this cross-discipline push within the Federal Reserve, and how she is using her background in finding missing data to help policymakers fight back against the coronavirus crisis. Welcome to the podcast, Abigail. I hope you're keeping well and safe. Thank you. Yes, we are. Yeah, it's the the kind of greeting that that one does not take lightly during this this period, um, unfortunately. But um, I'm glad glad that you're well. Um, I guess to to sort of kick things off, um, please tell us a little bit more about the the Opportunity and Inclusive Growth Institute. Um, I guess how and why it was established and and what you guys aim to achieve? Sure. So the Opportunity and Inclusive Growth Institute is a, a newer research initiative within the Federal Reserve System. And um, perhaps it makes sense to, to back up just for a minute and explain to folks that the Federal Reserve has a significant research component to the staff in every reserve bank throughout the country and in the Board of Governors. Um, and this is uh, a long, somewhat longstanding practice of multiple decades of bringing in highly trained, expert, academic style economists in particular in-house in order to have really very timely access to um, the most highly trained set of experts. And really having that research community in-house does two things. So first, it does what I think you would kind of conventionally envision, which is that you have an expert in-house, you can walk over to them and ask them a question, or you now can email them and ask for a memo, um, and you can get a, a really highly trained expert person to write it for you. But the other thing that it does is it helps connect the institution to an even broader set of experts who might not be physically or even formally connected with the institution. But by participating in the research community at that level, um, research economists in the Federal Reserve System have the ability to really keep feelers in all of the areas of academic work that are relevant to the Federal Reserve's operations and mission. And this has worked really well for the Fed system, particularly around our areas of core expertise, which, again, I think are often things that that kind of come to mind for people around central banks, macroeconomics, financial markets, um, international currency flows. These are all fields in which um, the Federal Reserve System has many economists working and has close ties to 
researchers and experts outside the system in those areas. What we've realized, I think, and, and this is true of the economic profession more broadly, I think it's true of the country, what we've realized is that the last several decades of changing inequality in the United States, but the United States is not alone in this, have really changed the kinds of expertise that policymakers need to have in order to understand how the economy is functioning for everyone. Um, three decades ago, four decades ago, we were kind of close to the tail end of a period of time where productivity growth was broadly shared in the United States. You could look at an aggregate statistic and that was a reasonable approximation of what was happening for most folks in the economy. Um, certainly not for everyone even at that time, but to a much greater extent than is true today, aggregate statistics were, were reasonable proxies for what was happening to everyone. Mm -hmm. And the Opportunity and Inclusive Growth Institute is really a reaction to that realization, um, understanding that to get a complete picture of how the economy works for everyone, we now need to have um, a much more diverse set of pictures. We need to be considering not just more statistics, but we need to um, create connections to researchers who have really focused on disparities and diversity in experience. Um, and that means connecting both to a wider group of economists, but even to a broader group of social scientists who have approached those questions in different ways. And so the Institute, that was a bit of a wind up, but the Institute was um, stood up in 2017 when Neil Kashkari joined the Minneapolis Fed. Um, there were kind of conversations about um, how best to create this Institute. The Board of Governors was supportive of it, um, but there was a lot of energy around hosting it in Minneapolis um, and particularly Neil's leadership around launching it uh, was really valuable for that. So the, the Institute, lives at the Minneapolis Fed, we live in the research department, um, and our mission is to really grow that research community for the Federal Reserve um, so that we are getting this very much more complete picture of um, expertise that can weigh in on these important topics of how the economy works for everyone. In other words, how can we generate more opportunity? How can we have growth that includes all of our citizens? Right, okay, so it's, I mean, it's it's a slight divergence, but but obviously very relevant for for the Federal Reserve and and its policy and and its mandated goals. But I imagine a lot of the information coming out of it is also very relevant to to a broader set of of policymakers. Um, is is part of the the distribution, I guess, sort of aimed at not just Federal Reserve and and policymakers within the system, but but also sort of wider a wider set of policymakers. Right. Yeah. And that was a piece um, that I should, should also add on that a second component of this is really to take that information that we're absorbing through this broader community of experts and make it more accessible to a wider set of policymakers. Like you suggested, um, the Federal Reserve doesn't have a broad set of tools for dealing with economic disparity, for dealing with um, access to the economy, access to the labor market, the whole suite of social and governmental interventions that might go into those things um, belong to a much broader set of policymakers. 
But what the Federal Reserve does have is, like I mentioned, this tradition and community and system of expertise that lives in-house. I would argue we have, I think, an unparalleled amount of research um, ability and expertise in the Federal Reserve System compared to any other federal or federally adjacent agency. And so it's a really wise use of resources to make sure that what we're learning is shared more widely with other policymakers who might um, be able to more directly affect the outcomes we're concerned with. Right, okay, yeah, and this, I guess, moves moves nicely on to, to some of your, your recent focus and and um and quite frankly the ho- the whole world's recent focus, um, the the coronavirus and what you are doing to in in response to, to some of the challenges that 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 it's creating for, for policymakers. Um so I understand that the institute is embarking on um a new real time data survey which um you have designed to to track um a variety of impacts of the virus um it'd be great if you could tell us a little bit about this this new new initiative and and i guess why and and how it was conceived right so part of the research work in the federal reserve system is that uh, many of us have the ability to take our research um in directions that that we think are important and um, and there's some latitude for for steering that work. And so early on in the epidemic, I was, I think like many people, disheartened, I would say, by just the real lack of the information that we needed in order to make the decisions that were going to have to be made. Um, and that's really a collective we, um, a collective kind of national we, not specifically necessarily the Federal Reserve System, but just overall, policymakers were having to make um, really impactful decisions with very little information. Um, And in particular, it occurred to me that um, many of the pieces of information we needed were things that we did collect already, but we didn't collect them in a timely fashion. um, And we didn't have access to them as quickly as we needed. And so to me, the problem really looked like um, one of how could we best put together the pieces that we already have as far as the data collection infrastructure in the U.S. and maybe juice it a bit. But it kind of, to me, called out for a solution that looked like reassembling things that we already had and making them work better. So um, I early on issued really just a proposal for a, a data collection effort that was really ambitious, um, but that I thought would help fill in some of these gaps. Um, and in particular, I can walk through what those areas are, um, but I'll, I'll just kind of say that this came out of a proposal that I issued. It was reissued um, through the Minneapolis Fed. And um, what we've done then is start to work with an external partner where private philanthropy can be combined to fund this research effort because it's, um, it is expensive. And so in partnership with um, an outside foundation and the National Opinion Research Center, which is a premier survey center at the University of Chicago, we're going to be able to actually implement this data collection effort. 
Right, and you sort of just briefly touched on it on it there. There's sort of a few areas which you're you're really trying to sort of gather data in. Um, yeah, what are these areas? And and yeah, it'd be interesting to to hear a little bit more detail on on that. Right. So again, I was sort of focused on what the kind of broader survey community might do because that's um, and that's an area that I've worked with a lot, that a lot of economists, but a lot of folks outside of economics um, in other disciplines work with as well. We work with these large national surveys that are designed to give us really high quality information about a, um, a known population in the US. So that means if we look up the statistics, for example, and the Census Bureau webpage for Arizona, we know that the statistics they're providing for Arizona represent the Arizona population because they've done a lot of work to make sure they're surveying the right people and the right combination of people to get that accurate picture. So um, when I started thinking about additional information that we needed, I started to think about what was it that our survey infrastructure could provide. And kind of most obviously for economists, our survey infrastructure can provide information about how the labor market is working for folks. And there are really urgent questions around um, what is happening, particularly in the U.S. where um, employers are um, potentially closing and um, programs are ramping up at different speeds across the states. Um, we need a lot of information about how um, employment is working for U.S. citizens. But beyond that, there really are a kind of a bigger set of indicators that we also need. So we also need information on mental health and social health. Um, interestingly, we hear that from employers a lot around the region, that mental health among employees in this time um, is something that's a great concern. So tracking that um, is another kind of angle that survey research can help us with. That's not necessarily a set of statistics that economists work widely with, but there are um, surveys designed to quickly assess mental health in the population um, that have been used over and over again. And again, we, we know that we're getting an accurate picture when we use those questions. And then the final component, and one that I actually think is really just the most glaring need for information right now, is about the actual spread of the virus. And so there are a number of ways to get at this that are currently being investigated as fast as possible. Um, these range from you know, large scale physical testing where we have a large army of health workers go out into the community and potentially physically administer either a test for a current infection or a test for antibodies to the infection um, to using big data that might give us clues to um, who is infected based on either search terms they're entering or um, what their internet-enabled devices are capturing. Um, our approach says, let's try this with survey data. Let's try asking people about a range of their health symptoms. Um, and there are a couple of reasons to do that. First of all, we know how to do a large-scale survey. Um, that's what our, the Census Bureau and other national statistical agencies do all the time. They don't do it quite as fast. Um, usually the census has a year to conduct its census and a year to collect its um, intracensal statistics. Mm -hmm. But they do it on a large scale, and we know how to do it. 
the other reason um, to at least explore the survey approach, um, in addition to the fact that basically we have the technology, we don't necessarily have these antibody tests, we don't necessarily have the technology to, to build a very large scale um, infection testing system right now. Um, another reason to do it is that it doesn't require any real health sector resources. So a large scale survey is something that we can conduct almost entirely without asking for help from public health agencies or, or other kind of medical providers. And so the physical health component of this survey is a bit more experimental, but there are reasons to try it. Um, it potentially then could serve as an indicator by just surveying folks about their symptoms of where the virus is emerging or retreating. Uh, but it has another couple of um, benefits as well. Even if ultimately we don't end up using a survey-based tracking system for virus emergence, it's really important to know what these other sources are giving us in terms of a, a picture of um, health and health behaviors. And the only way we can, can get that understanding is to have an accurate picture where we know we have a representative population and we can say, Here's a survey where we had a representative population answer these questions. These are the kinds of answers we got. Here, for example, over here, you have a phone app that somebody developed and rolled out on a voluntary basis to whoever decided to click on it off the internet. Um, they might have many more people. It could be valuable, it could work, but we need to be able to compare what they're getting to that in, out of that what we would call opt-in self-reports. We need to compare that to something where we know what the whole population would say. Um, I guess that brings me back to really part of the, the core mission of the Institute, which is understanding what's happening for everyone, making sure that communities are not left out of this analysis or left out of this tracking or monitoring because, you know, potentially that the tracking is easier for folks who have more resources or more convenient for folks who have um, are younger or have a higher level of schooling attainment. If you design a tracking system that's easier for those types of folks to use, um, you're not going to get that complete picture. And really the only way to do that is to do the hard work of going out and recruiting um, participants who are representative. And that's, um, that's what we'll be doing with the survey. Right, okay. This is, yeah, it's it's fascinating. So, you, so you're, I guess, building this this picture of of maybe some of the some of the data which is which is not there and and it needs to be sort of extracted out but i guess how how do you hope that policymakers might use this information and i guess what sort of decisions do you think that this could be sort of valuable um valuable information for yeah i think there's a few ways so initially my hope with this proposal was that policymakers would be able to use this to make uh, more refined opening and closing decisions. And so that's why a big emphasis on the survey is not just for representativeness, but also to have geographic detail so that we can say, this is what's happening, um, for example, in South Dakota or um, in my kind of ideal version of the survey, we would be able to get county level statistics we won't be able to do that initially in our first round. Um, but again, there's no reason this couldn't be accomplished with um, more of an investment. But ideally, you might even have counties that can point to these statistics and say, this is how our county is doing. 
we can open more safely or we can close or we need to close. Um, another thing that policymakers can do with this is to identify um, places where and, and kind of smaller communities kind of below the national level where workers or families really need more assistance. So um, I think it's likely that the mental health indicators, for example, will show that mental health in the United States overall is declining. Um, but it's not going to be declining the same everywhere and for every population. And so being able to tease out where are these really big hits happening um, is going to help us potentially target more relief. Ideally, the timeliness of the data will help target that relief more quickly and efficiently. Um, but overall, just having that detailed picture will help us figure out um, who our programs are reaching versus who they are not reaching. And that, again, in this kind of real-time environment that we're all existing in, it's really important to know, are the programs we're setting up getting through? Are they having an impact on um, the kind of physical, mental, or financial health um, experiences of constituents that we would like? So we hope that policymakers will be able to use this kind of for targeting. I would say a final way that policymakers could use this is to um, start to explore the intersection between these three components. That's another unique angle um, or kind of aspect of the survey is that we really are asking about these three units of well-being, so physical health, mental and social health, and um, financial stability. And most of the survey efforts that have sprung up around the virus have been extensions of surveys that were kind of already going on. And because they were already going on, they had a particular focus. But I think in the virus environment, we want to be able to get a quicker, more holistic picture of how folks are doing. Um, and so this survey will allow us to really think about how these different aspects of security, health, and stability interact with one another. Um, in a way that I, I think can be useful for, for crafting um, more creative, more context-appropriate policies as opposed to, um, I think it's fair to say that, that many folks who craft policy kind of reach for the tool that they're most familiar with, and um, they build those tools based on, you know, their legacy of data that they have. Um, and so we're trying to do something uh, more creative and more complete that I think is more appropriate for that virus environment. So again, I just hope that will lead to kind of more creative thinking about how policies in different areas can reinforce one another. Yeah, and I guess so uh, in sort of creating this this sort of avenue for potentially much more unique and, and targeted spaces, um, I imagine there's a lot of this sort of marriage marriage of disciplines um that, that we're hearing a lot about and and that's that's core to to the institute is this a a key component of of this project sort of bringing in social sciences and and um sort of healthcare and and all these sort of i guess different experts to help with the survey but also to to help with um sort of other other aspects of the 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 project yeah, so we've been able really quickly at the Institute to harness input from a pretty broad spectrum of experts. Um, and this is because the Institute was designed to connect with a set of folks who are a little bit um, 
outside the group that typically interacts with Federal Reserve research. Um, when the Institute was stood up, we immediately, um, I would say, had a really positive um, set of reactions from folks in a, the kind of broader research community who were interested in connecting with the Fed. So I do often, um, prior to the virus happening, would have interactions with folks, um, you know, just from broader fields outside my own who would say, you know, I've heard about this. You know, I work on something related to opportunity. I work on inclusion. I care about that. How can I connect with the Fed around this? And so I think the name of the institute is important, um, but also beyond, much beyond that, we've put in place actual structures to try to start pulling in a broader set of experts. And although the institute is not that old, um, we'd already had enough success with that that um, when I created this proposal, I was able to quickly build on that by basically email blasting a group of folks and saying, if we're going to draft a survey that looks like this, um, let's do it and just get input really quickly. I kind of stood up a, a kind of draft survey instrument set of questions. Folks were able to weigh in quickly, suggest substitutions and additions. Um, and we were able to do that interdisciplinary process really fast. Um, we were particularly fortunate to be able to work through our connections through our advisory board. And that contain, um, our advisory board members are folks from academia and research communities, but they're drawn from outside of economics as well. And so we were able to have some of the, um, for example, premier researchers on social and community capital weigh in on our survey instrument poverty researchers. We had also already started developing great connections um, in our Minneapolis and Twin Cities community around the universities here. We'd been connecting with folks in the public health school um, and the business school at University of Minnesota already who work on kind of these labor and public health issues. And by using those connections, we were able to get um, even, you know, actual epidemiology and um, emergency medicine faculty to weigh in on the survey instrument as well. That's been really beneficial. I'm incredibly grateful to those folks because their time is completely overtaxed right now. And for them to respond to basically an interdisciplinary request for information is just beyond generous. So um, I'm really grateful for that. But I also think it highlights how um, the way the Institute operates has already, um, it already shows up in the way this project moved forward. We were able to kind of already in that DNA, so to speak, have the interdisciplinary feedback um, and wider perspective from experts um, already kind of folded into or baked into the way this project has, has developed. Yeah. Um, and I guess in, in addition to, the benefits of how and why the institute is is designed the way it is um i believe this sort of challenge also comes naturally to you and and as i guess a bit of an extension of some of your past experience and and research interests in in finding hid, hidden data um yeah why were you sort of motivated to tackle this sort of problem with this 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 approach yeah so I think this is an example of, you know, uh, reaching for a tool that's familiar. 
I like to think that I'm trying to think of an appropriate way to use it in this context. And I will actually just take issue with, um, I don't know that anyone feels that any aspect of the current challenge um, is something, you know, addressing it comes naturally to them. I think everyone feels very overmatched. Um, But it is the case that um, economics and the, the kind of field of economics that I work in in particular thinks a lot about um, really this, we, we call it this idea of um, kind of counterfactual outcomes, which in the field of economics that I work in, we often talk about as a missing data problem. So a counterfactual is just you know, something that could have happened but didn't, or might have happened if you did something different than what you actually did. And um, a lot of our, our problems as policymakers kind of relate to trying to figure out what the counterfactual is. What would have happened if I hadn't done it that way? Or, or, you know, what would happen if I do do it this way, but I don't know because it's in the future. So trying to figure out these alternative scenarios is, is really core to all of economics. And um, like I said, the field that I work in has tended to approach those questions um, as a missing data problem. There is this alternative world where you did something different. You just don't see the data from it. You have the data from this world where you did whatever you did, um, but that other piece is actually just something you can't observe. And so there are a lot of techniques that economists have developed to try to guess what that alternative data looks like, and then you can just make straight up data comparisons. Um, But I think many of us over the decades have realized that um, sometimes it's very valuable to go out and get uh, the data that you don't have. And, and some research in economics really looks a lot like that. So um, really the kind of revolution in experiments, which won the Nobel Prize um, in 2019, that's really a form of getting the data that you need. You know, it basically is a setting that says, well, here's our problem. You know, we have two, uh, two policies we could choose. We don't know which one works better. Well, if you can set up an appropriate experimental situation and try them both out, then you actually get the data that you need to make that comparison. Um, so there really is, has been a lot of creativity in economics um, in the time that I've been working in it around just trying to figure out, can we set up a situation where we will get the information out that we need? What do we need to know to make a decision and how can we get that? So I'd say that just that idea of thinking about how can we fill in the missing data pieces is something that that permeates a lot of the way that I was trained and that a lot of folks working in economics are thinking right now. Wow, yeah. See, that's really fascinating to me. I think, um, yeah, just the, the way you describe it and everything, it's, 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 it just seems like this, this problem and, and this crisis that we're all facing, this is this sort of approach, sort of finding this, this missing data has probably never been um, so important, or at least it is highly suited to to the challenges that that we're facing in this this unprecedented um crisis with unprecedented policy choices and and everything it's it's all very new to to sort of everybody that's that's either studying it or or trying to control it or 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 trying to forecast it um so that's yeah that's just fascinating um and i guess sort of just moving back how exactly is the the survey coming together, um, and how is that exactly is it going to work in in practice in in terms of 
getting people to 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 fill it in i imagine technology is going to be a, a key part of this right so um so the survey is drafted and again i've been grateful for a lot of um just a lot of generous input from folks who have many other things to be working on right now um, you know, and that's really kind of a first piece. I think maybe it sounds easy to folks who don't design surveys, but um, it's it's frighteningly easy to ask a question that's not very clear. And um, so having a lot of expertise in survey design and experience with these is really helpful. Um, that's the main reason that the survey drew on a lot of existing questions that, um, like I was mentioning, are already asked out there in some other survey where we know how people react to it, we know that it's a clear question or at least the issues with it are known. Mm -hmm. And then we have these outside benchmarks from before the crisis to compare to. So I would say about 60% of the questions are, are really these existing questions drawn from elsewhere. And, and I think that's key to getting this moving fast is pick a known quantity, ask about that, ask more frequently. There are a number of questions that just need to be new. So I don't think that um, a strategy of only asking existing questions is the right way to go because there just are a number of things that we weren't really asking about prior to the onset of the virus. Um, an example of that is, um, it's unfair to say we weren't asking about it at all, but an example of this is furlough or temporary layoff. That tended to be something that was kind of buried in a few like very specialized labor market surveys. And um, it also wasn't clear often if folks right now knew what that meant. Um, it was kind of an older term um, from the early decades of, I would say the 20th century. Um, and you know when unions were more dominant, um, we've all become more familiar with it very recently. But that's just an example of something where I think we weren't asking as much about it because it had just not been a, a top of mind issue. Um, so some of the questions need to be new or need to emphasize things that we weren't thinking about before. Um, so that's kind of the mechanics of building the survey. The survey partner, um, National Opinion Research Center is incredibly important because they already administer a number of nationally representative surveys, some of which are, are already for our statistical agencies. Um, potentially the best known of their surveys is the general social survey. Um, so if you hear statistics like um, over time, um, folks have become more accepting of uh, women working outside the home, if you hear those kinds of statistics, that's coming from the general social survey uh, that NORC administers. And so they have expertise in really reaching out to these populations and really importantly, they do this, um, they can do this in two ways. So one thing they do is they have what's called a standing subject panel. And so again, if you've seen really recent survey results around COVID, it almost certainly is coming from a standing subject panel, which means there's a set of people, hopefully they're representative, but we know there's some known problems with this. And they basically kind of sign up to take surveys online for a survey organization. Right. Um, and those, those organizations can move fast because they have people sitting at home and they push out a new survey to them and it pops up in their inbox and they take it. Um, but the issue with that, those kinds of groups, like I said, 
even though there are efforts to make them representative, there are known limitations to that. And so to really get um, a quality population, you have to do outreach, which basically involves contacting people by either phone or mail um, based on an address frame. And that's the, uh, that's the technique that the census uses for the American Community Survey. That kind of technique is used by other national surveys, um, and NORC is able to do that. So um, some of the respondents in our survey will be from a standing panel, but then they will also do the work of really contacting folks by mail, inviting them to participate. Um, they will have to participate online, but there will be an option to participate by phone. Again, um, also trying to make sure that we've reached every community that needs to be reached to have a complete picture. You have to provide an opportunity for folks who can't um, access the internet to be able to take the survey. They can do that by phone. Um, the survey will be translated, so it will be available um, for non-English speakers, uh, at least for some languages. And so that's, that's kind of what you get from using a survey partner like that with that kind of expertise, is you get all of those pieces that you're just not going to get if you, um, you know, zing this out on the internet to an unknown group of folks. Right, okay. Um, I guess we're, we're sort Does of running... Does that answer your question? Yeah, yeah, it did. Yeah, very <laughs> right, much <okay>. so. <laughs> it was maybe too much information. No, but, no, um, very much so. I'm yeah, sure there'll be... There's a lot of mechanics that goes into it, yeah. Yeah, I'm sure there'll be there'll be listeners out there which will be potentially thinking about doing something doing something similar. So I think yeah, the the information and, and the detail on on how best to do it and, and, and partnering with these these firms I'm sure I'm sure readers will find very, very interesting. Um so I guess we're we're sort of running a little bit little bit out of time. So I wanted to just sort of ask when when do you start um or when do you hope to start gaining sort of tangible insights um, and, and how are you going to sort of distribute the, the information? Is it going to go up on the, the Institute's website? Is it, is it, are you going to sort of post it directly to, to policymakers? How exactly are you going to, going to distribute it all? What we plan to do is ideally have results by late April uh, and then we will craft fact sheets that are specific to each of the subnational geographies that we are able to collect. Um, again, we're not able to go full scale immediately, but we will have information for um, 18 subnational geographies in the U.S. That means it's either a state or a large metropolitan area, and we picked a combination of those based on where the virus was um, and to help inform a couple of questions about different types of communities. So, um, so 18. Uh, either city, large cities or states will have separate information. We will break all of those out into fact sheets for each of those areas, um, along with national statistics. And then again, the, the data that we are able to collect, the microdata, will be publicly available. Okay, great. I think that's that's probably all, all we have time for for today um it's been a, a fascinating discussion, and I guess the some of the the key themes that that come out is this need for for timely information to understand the the emerging threats and and how this virus um evolves and for for, for policymakers um i think the yeah the the ability to sort of stay nimble and 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 be able to react to 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 the 
to the changes and 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 as we understand more about the the virus and and adapt policies and and targeted policies towards it is is just increasingly important and um i wish the the survey the best of luck and and perhaps we can sort of touch back again once it's once it's up and running a bit more and and you've got some sort of tangible results that we can that we can discuss so um yeah thanks so much for for coming on the show that sounds great well thanks for your interest